I really have to ask you before we start seriously, because I'm always concerned about the people that I love mm -hmm. during this season. You know, during this winter season, light-skinned people really oh struggle because they don't, they, <laughs> they don't get a lot of light. And I know that you're a member of the LAA, you know, Light-Skinned Association of America. And, and so I'm just wondering, you know, how you, you know, how you doing during this season? I'm, I'm living. I'm all right. I'm, I, it's, it is tough for us in these cold, cold seasons, but... Uh, I'm faring pretty well. I will get some sun eventually. You're crazy. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, hey, brother, I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying for you, brother. Brothers and sisters, my name is Kirk Franklin, and I come to give you good words. Let's go. So brothers and sisters, I want you to know that in the culture, there's so many times that we just kind of throw away titles and, and we make them so passive that they don't have as much value as they may have had back in a certain period of time. But today, this is a real one. This is a real conversation with somebody that God has given me this type of agape love that is real. It is real and deep and it is sincere. My pride for this young man, my support for this young man, how I light up like a big brother when I see him just achieving so many levels of success in his career. I feel like that I've had a chance to plant seeds and I've had a chance to see some things grow. And there's a level of humility that comes with that that makes me feel a genuine brotherly love for this young man. And I know that in the season of male toxicity that is problematic, it's not always uh, familiar when men show love and affection for each other without being, without being ostracized in the culture. I don't care. I love this dude. This my guy. Oh, man. This my guy. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Windy City, please welcome, by his government name, Chancellor <laughs> Jonathan <laughs> Bennett. Y'all know him as, y'all know him as Chance, the rapper. Anybody ready? Anybody? Anybody ready? Anybody? Anybody ready? For the world. Woo! Yo, well, that is a crazy intro. Kirk, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I think it's so crazy because I always think of you as my big brother and I hear you say that stuff. I just, uh, I thank you. There's too many examples that I could give, but I feel like one of the funniest ones is you used to always call Kirsten my wife, like way before I proposed or even we were kind of not figuring it out still. And, uh, and you did plant that seed, man. So I, wow. you know, there's so many other things I could thank you for the Grammys, the helping me with to this day with the virtual concerts, but mm. that's probably the biggest thing that's happened in my life. So, are you definitely a seed planter, a big brother, a brother in Christ, all that stuff? Wow. Thank you, man. Uh, sh now, should I call you Chancellor or should I call you Chance? <laughs> what, what, which one do you? you? Can, I would prefer if you call me Chance. Okay. I, 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 I was just wanting to know. I'm just wanting to know, brother. I just no, wanted so to know, good. you know, since it's, yeah, hey, 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 dur during light skin season, you yeah. have the right to I have establish this right now. Yes, right. sir. Yeah. Only until spring. Okay. You know, you can do whatever you want to right now. My question. <laughs> Is I want to know from you that when you started seeing headlines calling you a gospel rapper, mm -hmm. did that scare the hell out of you? Because that's not what you were trying to do. 
Yeah, it did. To be honest, it <laughs> yeah. was a. I I actually never wanted to be, at the time, or even I would say to this day, considered a gospel artist. Because when I think of the word gospel, I think of the gospel or you know the good news. And you know, uh-huh. and I'm, and my album, it was very far from what people were used to seeing in mainstream hip hop in terms of, you know, being honest about my faith and stuff. But it still wasn't. Like, to me, a gospel album, Kanye made a gospel album. His last album, to me, was fully in service of Christ. I think all my projects are me explaining where I'm at in life. So my last one was about getting married. The one before that was about me finding Christ. The one before that was about me doing drugs. The one before that was about being in high school and getting suspended. So it's like I try and tell my story, and I think I still have an album in me that's going to be fully in service to Christ. But I think... When they started saying I was making gospel, I was like, well, my grandma's going to get on my head because I'm definitely cursing throughout this album (laughs) and talking about a a lot of stuff that's not just in service to Christ. But I think it's it's just a thing where it's like you can't control how people perceive you, you know? Or how they categorize your bodies of work. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I'm a I'm a rapper. That's what I am. At the end of the day, I rap. I make rap music, and you know, I'm, I as there's a lot of different genres. But to me, rap is like rap is culture. It is language, and it is like uh, the way that a lot of people communicate, whether it's in clothing or sound or just style. It's like a it's a thing, and so that's how I that's how I've always communicated. And I think when it started being like. Chance as a gospel rapper, I was like, ah, I don't want to fake the funk. But also, I love Christ. So it's like, hey, I'll be a gospel rapper. I used to listen to Canton Jones. I'm I'm, a, I'm about the gospel rap stuff. <laughs> I'm about the gospel rap stuff. I love it. I love it. I love it. You gave me the good white guy voice. Yeah. That was the good I'm, white guy. I'm, I'm, I'm about the gospel rap stuff. <laughs> that was a good white man voice. I like that good white man voice. Let me ask you this. So that how did you handle also the backlash like from the acid rap fans, you know, that they were like, hold up, hold up. Just because I remember being at one of your concerts and mm-hmm. I remember the audience like like yelling for the acid rap stuff too. So, you know, I like how did you deal with them not wanting to lose that part of you? I think it's uh it's something that was tough at first. But then also, I also remember, like, like how I was just saying that I always make stuff that's about me or about what I'm going through. In most cases, when I first made Acid Rap, I remember very vividly, and maybe some of the fans don't because they didn't get on to Acid Rap until later, but I had a lot of pushback on Acid Rap because I was, my first project was about me being in high school and being suspended, and then my Acid Rap was all about doing LSD, which at the time was not, a thing that most people did, especially not black kids. So it was like a thing that I had to deal with when I was rapping about what I was going through and people not necessarily feeling me. And so I have to always remind myself that I'm not rapping someone else's lyrics or someone else's life. I'm doing what's true. And so I had to kind of get over that and remind myself that, like, this is who I am. This is what I do. Like, they're either going to be here or they're not, but I'm going to still be singing. And what's crazy is that over time, you know, coloring book becomes the standard. Now it's like we want coloring book back now. You know what I mean? And that, it that, is that'll crazy. always happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you know what? That is a strong point. As much as the point of that you most of the times when you hear 
uh, young black men that have gone through what you've gone through during their season of curating the SRAP record. Most of them come from sometimes, you know, um, marginalized backgrounds, you know, backgrounds where they don't have both their parents, you know, fathers absent. That wasn't the case for you. How yeah. do you think that even for somebody like you that came from this upper middle class environment as a young black man, how did you still find yourself, if you only feel comfortable talking about it, no, finding yourself finding yourself in that space during acid rap? Yeah, I mean, well, to be honest, I'm from the hood. Like, I'm from 79th. I don't get too deep into it, but um, I and I still be in, like by my old house my aunt lives over there mm -hmm. my family still lives over there my biggest difference I feel like was the fact that I had both of my parents in the house mm -hmm. and my dad wasn't even just a father to me and my brother but to most of the kids in my neighborhood he took us all on the wow. fishing trips he took us all to wow. McDonald's on Saturdays and I I had a life I feel like very similar to uh Cuba Gooding Jr.'s Trey and, okay. uh, and uh, Boys, uh, Boys in, the in the Hood. Yeah. Boys in the Hood. Yeah. That was my life. I really had a moment where I was about to get in a car to go do something. And my dad literally called me like, if you get in that car, you can't stay here anymore type stuff. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So I had I had a lot of interactions with police, with, you know what I'm saying? Everybody was gangbanging in Chicago from way before the Chief Keefe stuff happened. I had a lot of interactions with a lot of stuff that... The real difference between me and everybody else was that my mom and my dad lived together and beat my ass whenever I. I'm sorry, guys, on the podcast, but it was you like said I, ass. As a, Ladies and gentlemen, he said <laughs> ass. I just want to make sure that you understood. He said ass, and 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 uh, he's able to say ass on this show. Finish. What what did you say right after ass? And, and so then after I said the a word, <laughs> <laughs> the the big thing is that when you're a rapper or when you're somebody that makes communication, you know, media, music, whatever, even if you're Tyler Perry, there's going to be a large white audience, right? A lot of people that are, you know, ingesting this music, the ones that have money to go to shows, money to buy tickets to shows, faster internet, <laughs> like the ones faster that, internet. The, the, those, those be the white kids. And so my fan base over time went from being hyper-local the schools that I was going to to play shows, the open mics I was going to play shows, to this national thing where it's a lot of kids that are actually from the suburbs. And so they're pulling something completely different from my music than my original fans. And at a certain point, I think when I got to acid rap, I was talking about a lot of stuff that was happening in my life, a lot of PTSD that I had, seeing my friend get killed in front of me, seeing... My my best friend when we were growing up, his dad got shot two houses down from us when they kicked his door. A lot of like things that had happened to me that I was talking about in this album were also interspersed with, you know, this fantastical drug rap and like talking about this this money that I want to get, this hunger that I have for these cars, like, mm -hmm. and all and it was all in this like, you know, this crazy tornado of ideas like spinning real fast and I think it like pulled people from all these different walks of life because I was you know speaking on a true experience but also I speak I speak good white people talk like I can I can I have the gift of gab you do it well yeah I can and you do it very well yeah. yes I can I can <laughs> I, I'm, I can speak very eloquently if I want to and yeah. so yeah when that very comes, articulate young man <laughs> yes and yeah. so when I when I put the project out I think you know, it was weird and it was different, and so it alienated some people. But because it was so 
good. I can't. I don't know another way to describe it. If, yeah. It's, yeah. It circulated well. It took me on tours, and it took me. You know, I was able to tour off ass rap for three years before I dropped Color and Book, and so that was what wow. people knew me as, and. And related to, and there's so many kids I'll go to their colleges and they'd be like, my first time tripping acid was to you. And I didn't have the heart to tell them, like, nigga, I stopped doing acid two years ago. Like, <laughs> but it's like, it's like that's that's <laughs> that's who you become when you have this music out. And so people start to, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's very 2D yeah. and you continue to grow. Yeah. So. Man, your your level of honesty and transparency is something that I've always been proud of you about, man. Oh, and thanks, just that man. level of vulnerability is uh, one of the great signs of your genius. Did you grow up in church? You know, did you know like, yeah. like how was that for you? I think that, so the answer is yes, I grew up in the church. My great grandmother in the early 70s started the children's church and the VBS, the vacation Bible school at my church. And so Boy, what you know about VBS? Um, what you know about that? I, I run a VBS. You remember <laughs> you called in and talked to my students one time. I've been Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, so okay. I took okay. over I took over in 2000 15. So we've been running it for five years, but she she started it in the 70s. And uh, and so since since I was a little kid, we would go up to the church. I wasn't like the kids that was there every day. Like I wasn't going there on Wednesdays and Thursdays and all the other stuff. But I was up at the church at least two days a week and then I spent all my summers at the church. But I think it's a very, very different relationship when you come to find Jesus on your own as opposed to like, yeah, you know, yeah. just hearing about it from your grandmother or being prayed over or going to, you know, Bible study or whatever. Like when you actually, when he comes to you or when you find him, you're like, yeah, it's a very different relationship. So yeah, I knew Jesus when I was a kid, but I ain't, I ain't know Jesus until yeah, I was yeah, probably yeah. 21 or 22. Yeah, it's like rumors. You kind of heard that he was kind of like, you was like, oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I guess, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Was there a point in your life where it got dark for you or when it got difficult where it became personal? Was there a moment where, boom, like he knocked on your heart and kind of like an uppercut you in your chin? Like, was there a dark yeah. moment like that? yeah. I, it was a very dark moment. I don't want to get too, I don't want to get too deep with it. I would rather, I'll bro, tell it like a- Bro, uh, bro get as deep as you want to. This is your big brother's show. The best way to describe it is, uh, there's a story of Jesus when he, uh, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, right? And so mm -hmm. like, yeah. Jesus was uh, brought after, after fasting all these days and walking through the desert, the devil came to him and basically tried to tempt the Lord, like in the flesh, yeah. and uh, use his flesh against him, and tried to tempt him into turning his these rocks into bread. And then, uh, and then he took him to the tip top and looked over the city and said, "You could have this whole world." And and, uh, and then told him to jump and asked him to get the angels to catch him. And, and he basically tried to tempt the Lord, right? Yeah. And Jesus, being Jesus, you know, he's infallible, so. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't work on Jesus. And I think those same kind of temptations in terms of asking us in our most fleshly forms, you know, we're not perfect. We're not the the son of God in the way that right. Jesus was. Right. We get tempted right. the same way. And I was in a moment where I was very scared and tempted and being shown the world. And the sheer fear that was on my heart caused me to kind of pull back into myself for a while. Wow. And it wasn't until I started to dig into the word that I started to feel less fearful about whatever this energy was that I ran into. And so 
Yeah, no, basically, I guess the in the uh, best way to describe it is I was I was faced with the world on a golden platter and I it the way that it was presented to me was so unpure that I could smell that it wasn't for me. Um, mm. But I wasn't immediately shown Jesus in this time. I was just shown what is antithetical to what Jesus wanted for me. And so I would say probably wow. probably a month later, I found Jesus and I was able to bounce back and get my confidence. And about two years later was when I made coloring books. So it was, it was, a, it was a time, it was wow. a long time, yeah. But wow. Uh, wow. yeah. Do you think that you were prepared for the difficulty chance of now when you're doing this, trying to balance the language of the streets along with the language of your soul? Because not only were you explicit about your faith when it comes to Cullen Book, you were still explicit about your life experiences on the block and to that culture. And And do you think that you were prepared for how difficult that balancing act was? I don't think so. I think I'm still unprepared. It's a it's a daily fight, and there's all types of spiritual warfare within the industry that we work in. And so, mm, I, yeah, I think what I am able to do is I I have I've been blessed with good discernment. I think to a certain extent to. Mm be able to kind of just see what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing. But also, yes, yeah, it's, 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 uh, God is absolute. So it's like, he's absolute in his forgiveness, but he's also mm-hmm. absolute in the fact that he gave us the information that we needed. And so Ooh, I'm, good. I, I think I've trying, you know, I don't know. I'm still like, I'm still figuring this stuff out and still, battling with just outside of music, like watching my mouth and watching, you know, how I react to things. And it's a daily battle. But I I think I was in that in that same regard, I feel like I I don't always have the same tools or the same resources or the same outlook or the same feeling or spirit every day. But I feel like, you know, God's not gonna give me more than I could bear. And so I just gotta look for the tools that Jesus has given me in the moment so I could get through. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's like my everyday battle. And you're talking about one of those tools being discernment. How does one cultivate that? How how can a person cultivate discernment? Or is that a spiritual gift? I think to a certain level it's a spiritual gift because I think the only way to really tone it or work that muscle is to be in the Word and try mm. and learn the Word. I didn't necessarily have the word right in front of me, but he gave me the word. And then as I went through it, I picked up my book and then it's right there. It's like, this is what you're living through. And so I think it's both sides. It's something that you have to, it's a skill that you have to, just like you go to the gym, you got to work out. But it's also, I think God, you know, he blesses people. That's just a true thing. There's people in the Bible that were blessed and there's people Uh to this day that are blessed. And so Uh I think I've been blessed to, be able to look at certain things and say, this is for me or this is not for me. You yeah, know I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I agree with you, you know, that that God, it's, it's almost like a parent giving a kid a bike for Christmas, but the bike is not put together. It's just a box. <laughs> and yeah. like, like a loving parent ain't going to do that. A loving parent's going to stay up all night and put the bike together. And the manufacturer is mm. going to have a manual to come along with it. God is not going to put you on this planet and not give you a manual. Mm-hmm. And so that manual, you know, like... 
having discernment is not this elitist thing that only the bishops and the preachers have, that every son and daughter can have it yeah. if we just read the manual. Yeah, <laughs> you totally. Did? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think that's dope. I think that that's super dope how you said that and 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 kind of tap into that. And I want to ask you this, uh, Chance, if you don't mind. So many black men your age don't necessarily accept Christianity due to its ugly you know, history with slavery and colonialism. How did you walk through that dark part of it and still find the light? So for one, I feel like your relationship with Jesus, not to take a step away from, you know, realism or anybody that wants to be a, a, a realist, but my relationship with Jesus is deeper than race. And I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that, but I feel like when Jesus, the Jesus, because it's only one Jesus, when Jesus yeah. comes and gives you a heart of flesh, it's not really too many things that could get in between that. Mm. And I feel like God really picked me and said, I want you to know I'm going to reveal to you. And so mm-hmm. that that in itself, I couldn't really get clouded by what people had to tell me about how black people came to know Christ. But on the other side, I was very lucky. You know my pastor because you were at my wedding. Charlie uh, Dates is that guy. Charlie Dates. He's that. He's a very, very smart, Brilliant. very, very black dude. And so— Brilliant. Brilliant. He taught me about uh, the eunuch of, of Ethiopia. So the first, yeah. the first people really to know Christ, and it's not just in the Bible, but also it's just historical fact, were Ethiopians. It's historical. Right? Yes. So, yes. so the first and oldest Christian church in the world is in Ethiopia. Some of the first Amen. people to baptize people were black people in Africa. Yeah, buddy. And so yeah, buddy. because we reference so much of our history as starting with slavery and the transatlantic slave mm. trade, we don't really get to understand that Christianity as an organized thing started in Africa and that also just the map, the way that it looked like topography and choosing maps and saying this part is Europe and this part, that's a white man's game anyway. Like if you look at it, all yeah. that stuff is yeah. very clear. It's right there on yeah. Africa. So it's right, just, a, right across the street. Yeah, right across the street. Right across the street. So it's like right across the street. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you yeah. when you get that history, and I was blessed to have that, it gives you a certain uh, a ease and a certainty as a black person because that's instantly what people are gonna attack you with is like that's the white man's religion and that's white Jesus. But like Jesus wasn't white. Nope. Uh, Christianity started in Africa. And at the end of the day, all of this stuff started in Africa. So I think that helped me out on my walk. But at the end of the day, his blood is red. His blood is red. Yeah. At the end of the day, like he died for me. So I'm not tripping. That's what's good. Chance, do you think that we're trying too hard to make Jesus cool to culture? I think so. Like, you know, (laughs) yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because the bottom line is, you're talking about a guy that was born by a virgin, you know, mom and daddy didn't have sex, you know what I'm saying, riding on donkeys that talk, turning <laughs> water into wine, <laughs> taking a ham sandwich and feeding thousands of people on the mountain, you know, all this stuff that people be like, bro, please, come on. Right. You know, um, do you think that we're trying too hard? I don't think that we're trying too hard. I think that we could try the wrong way sometimes, you know. Because at the end of the day, you could teach people a million things, but until God works on their heart, they're not going to be able to accept Jesus. So I feel like I've been in positions where, not even from a music standpoint, but just like in conversations. Like, you know, when you're a—and Kanye just went through this, so like I got to see it on somebody else. 
when Jesus first comes and reveals himself to you, then you got to tell everybody and you got to call out everybody yeah. on what they're not supposed to do. And you got to tell them, yeah, see, yeah. that's God, you know, and yeah. and you eventually, I think everybody, they start to pull back and start to understand, like, that's not the way. But, like, I had a long time where, like, any kind of thing that I could even think that went against the Bible, I was ready to get into a debate real quick. And I had mm -hmm. to realize, like, you can't debate somebody into accepting Christ. Like, you have to wait on the Spirit to move on them. And so I think our job is to still spread the good news because we are tools of Christ. We are, we are God's children that, that have been blessed to know the word. And so we have to keep singing his praise. We have to keep spreading the good news. But I think we just have to be careful in how we do it and not in a way that, you know, alters his word or, you know, does yeah. anything that's yeah. not, you know, but I think, I think we, I think what we're doing is right. I think we're supposed to be talking about what he did and what he does. Yeah, yeah. And I do agree with you that maybe, we, you know, as leaders, we may have to come back and really reassess that maybe, you know, trying to have the freshest sneaks around y'all and <laughs> yeah. trying to have the dopest drip around y'all, maybe, maybe. It'd be a little too much sometimes. Share that with me a little bit. How does how does that feel? No, 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 no. Like, 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 like on God. Like yeah, just right yeah. now, just on God yeah. chance. So, so when you see a Christian preacher or pastor or gospel artist it's try tough. to rock with you, <laughs> give me some. Talk it's, more about that, bro. Don't play with it. Come on, give it to me. And be one hundred. Keep it a buck too. I think. I think. Okay. So this is me keeping it a thousand with you right now. I think sometimes when you see a pastor on stage that's telling you about Jesus, who even if you don't know Jesus, you know that he was the only king that was born in a manger and in some straw in a box. You know that he's the king that didn't ride a horse and rode a donkey. You know that he was poor. Yes. And, and so when you see somebody that's given you the word— if they're not extremely humble, if they're not extremely meek, even someone that's not used to being in that space or doesn't super know Christ, I think sometimes it it feels like it's conflicting ideas. Though it may not be. Though God probably blessed them with all the things that they have, I think that sometimes there could be a little dissonance. And I think I'm only saying that because I've noticed people notice it. When you and your, should I say, mainstream friends, when y'all look at some of the people that try to be around you that rep the church. You're saying that a lot of you and your friends don't see these people as people that you want to trust your heart with. So I think I'm different. I live in Chicago. Like, I'm afraid of going to mega churches. Like, I have been my, like, for a long time. So I, I live in a different thing, you know. I think when... When I go to L.A. and my friends want me to go to their church, that's like one of the first things that I notice is like, this nigga got a chain on? Like, you know, it's like, it's like, a, <laughs> it's, but that's, that's me. And I got to also like, my wife talk, tells me about it. She's like, you got to like work on your heart because you don't, you're supposed to hear the word. You don't need to look at him to get the word. And so I think that might be me. But my friends, for the most part, they are, you know, I don't think that they see a problem with it because they live in L.A. also. So like. They hang out with their pastors outside of church. They, you know, they all drive the same kind of cars. Their mm. churches are way, way bigger, too. The churches are like, they fit thousands of people. And so yeah. uh, I think it's like they're they're used to it, and that might be what L.A. needs. And I've gotten a good word. I went to Torrey's church one time and got a, got a real good word. I wish that I could remember it right now, but I remember being— 
hyped after I left. And and and, and Therese Church is big, and it, and it is newer, like more contemporary stuff. So I don't want to make it seem like I'm hating on it at all. No, 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 no. And I want you to know that it's not coming like that, first of all. But at the same time, we got to be able to have honest conversations. Like, I'm not bringing you on this podcast to be having a conversation like, well, you know, brother, you know, we're going to. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, we also need to have conversations as bros that can keep it a buck about the good, bad, and ugly because something is happening. Something is breaking down because it ain't like people have a high view like they used to about Christianity, Christians, the church. It is obvious that a lot of people's views are declining. So as I think it would be very prideful and elitist for people in the faith to not want to look and be like, yo, man, what are we doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? What is something that needs to be adjusted? Give me a quick response to that. If you could help a younger generation that has been turned off, or even young Christian leaders, a young Christian gospel artist or whatever, if you were speaking to young Christian gospel artists, young Christian leaders, what would you say is something that you're seeing having the blessed opportunity to live in both worlds yeah. What can we work on to make Jesus be the dopest example to a dying world? So I think like, all right. So for one, I just want to say real quick, I recognize that I had just said something about how Jesus wants us to listen to what our preachers preach and not necessarily what they do. And so, and then I just said something that was antithetical to that when I said, you know, that they're not dressed meek and I'm looking at this. So I just wanted to to just call that to my own attention. But to answer your question, we as human beings, all of us as human beings, what we are is the body of Christ, right? Especially when we are linked up and following what the bridegroom wants, right? Yeah. So we're the we're the bride of Christ. We have to link up. We have to get everybody in the know. So when it's time for every knee to bow, we already know the words to the song, right? So I'm Mm. I think I think about it like this. The church has to thrive as a body, as a living unit, in order for us to except the bridegroom, right? And so I think two of the keys to getting people back in the church, one, the number one, the most important one is being that church to people outside of the church walls. And this is something that my church does a lot, you know, paying for people's laundry, paying for people's gas, trying to, you know, offer canned food drives when it's wintertime, being outside of the church walls and giving people yeah. a home refuge and, and helping people with the money that the church receives. And, you know, yeah. the second thing that I think brings people into the church is, you know, in the 60s, like the church was the epicenter of the movement, right? It's like where a lot of organizing efforts came out of Martin yeah. Luther King, a lot of people, you know, and they were and they were also not to just like jump at it like we did stop doing it for no reason. But the U.S. government also was bombing our churches. We're cutting out the power and the, where the Black Panthers were doing their food drives and stuff. Uh-huh. And so yeah. that was that was our refuge in a war for equality was the black church. And I think because there's such a polarizing difference between what. The black church upholds as honoring God, which is, you know, heterosexual relationships, uh, having kids after you're married, you know, um, the way you dress, the way you talk. It's a lot of like very like minute 
and kind of uh, superficial or superfluous needs that you have to meet to meet the criteria of the black church. I just know this growing up in church and being between two churches that, you know, sometimes people get pushed out for their differences. So the, the black church is very, very strict in that. And then the new movement is based in a lot of acceptance of things that the black church just doesn't necessarily promote or push. And I don't think that the black church necessarily needs to change God's word to love on everybody and to uh, accept and help everybody. And I think if the black church, and I really should just say the church, but it's hard because you know that there's very, very big difference between the black church and the yes. evangelicals yeah. and what they believe in terms of— More than ever. Yeah. More than ever. So if, if the black church could become an organizing effort for the— for all of us young folks and could become the place of refuge again in terms of organizing. I think so many people would come to know the love of Christ because I know a lot of organizers that are very strongly Christian. Y'all, after the break, I asked Chance about his own organizing efforts in his hometown of Chicago. More with Chance the Rapper when Good Words returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm glad you brought up your awareness of how the black church during the civil rights movement was the, it was the epicenter of that movement and that growth. And to not see the church being active that way today is problematic from the teachings of Christ because the teachings of Christ was a a heaven view and it was a social view of being able to share that duality. I want you to know that I was very proud of you watching you during um, this pandemic out in the streets of Chicago, out being in the middle of all these pandemics that were contemporaneous, right? You know, and and seeing you, what what made you fall in love with having such a social compass as a Christian and just as a black man and as a young black man, but because you ain't number 14, (laughs) you know, like how did that happen for you? Yeah, I'm just, I think... For one, I gotta gotta give it up to my grandmother and my great grandmother. They both marched with King and were heavy mm. into organizing. My my grandmother worked for Harold Washington, got the first black mayor of Chicago elected. My dad was an organizer and worked in politics too. And so, I've always had I feel like a responsibility to at least know what's going on. And then I think at the beginning of the pandemic. I was honestly just speaking, I like to keep it real. I was scared, you know, to go out, not just because of the virus. And, you know, it's hard to put a just in front of it because it kills a lot of people. But yeah, yeah. But also because of the response from the police, especially in Chicago, was not it wasn't sweet. Like they weren't playing around with the people and the people wasn't playing either. It was very like, yeah. you know, um, 
it was a lot going on. And so how did it feel to be boots on the ground at that moment? Give me a view for somebody like me who was sitting at home. How did it feel, Chance, to be in the middle of all of that tension and just the conflict at that very moment in history? Uh, scary, to be honest with you. Like, I try not to fear nothing but God, but I'm going to be honest with you. I was scared. Out and then I heard my name on the, I heard my name on the dispatch. Cause like, you know, it <laughs> was, it was going down. Right. So like, I was mad. Right. There was already, there was an issue. I'll just give you a quick brief overview. There was an issue with how the policing was going down during COVID. Right. So they were, they were doing these raids in my neighborhood and also out west where they were going into these block parties or, or people gathering at the crib or people going to the parks and shutting them down, ticketing people, arresting people, arresting a lot of black people for not social distancing, right? But then you come downtown where I live and there's people in the park, there's pictures of police officers handing people water bottles, people are throwing parties at the bars. And that's that's where the white people live. You know, Chicago's very, very segregated. So Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I had an issue with that and we started to like organize around this this issue. And we had a a rally planned at a police station that I was at and we did a like a march or whatever, and literally hours before we got there, the video came out of when George Floyd was murdered. And so mm. it mm. pivoted that day and the tensions were high because we were around all these police like they're, they're being told to, you know, be on edge. And we're on edge, too, because we just seen, you know, a very, very graphic murder. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and so, you know, in the coming days after that, you know, it only intensified. And I'm Twitter fingers. I'm talking it up and going outside. And one day I put out something, you know, and then I went outside and then my phone starts blowing up. People are like, hey, get off the streets. They just arrested so-and-so who's my homie or so-and-so who's my homie. And they're saying your name on the dispatch. They're trying to find out where you are because they're saying you incited this riot. And I'm like, oh, yeah, peace. So I went to the crib. But I was I was scary because it's like, you know, you could be a rapper and famous and, you know, you get a free ice cream when you go to Baskin Robbins, but like when the, <laughs> who's going to stop the police if they start really flexing my ass? Like I'm not really wow. going to be able to do nothing. So I went wow. back to the crib and I maybe went out to one more demonstration after that. But uh, it's a, it's a fearful moment. You know, you don't really recognize how much power the governing body has over its citizens until they wow. start declaring martial law and start choking people out and start shooting rebel bullets and start tasing people and bringing in these, I don't know if you ever saw it, they brought in this thing in Chicago, this giant radiation thing or something that no. it emits heat like really fast no. to like to move people around. Yeah, they were like rolling that in. I was like, man, this is some no. cap. Yeah, so... That, I was scared. That's the best way I could describe it. I wish I could say, like, I was out there shirtless with my hand up the whole time, but I was very, very, you know, I was trying to keep a cool head when I was out there, stay out the news heads. Like, I was Jeez. trying to keep it low-key in the crowds. But uh, Chance, Chance, let me tell you something. I cannot believe what you shared with me, man, for you to see that at your age, you know, to know that, like, this sounds like the Vietnam War or something. It, it, it sounds, listen, Listen, I want to ask you something, and I've tried to figure out how many ways I can put it together to have a level of sensitivity because I've seen so many so many individuals on both sides that have good hearts try to articulate this issue. I'm asking you to help me as a father. I'm asking you to help me as a black man. 
in your own words as well as you can articulate it, can you help me understand the core dilemma with the black-on-black violence in Chicago with the young black youth? Yeah, I could give a few explanations of it. So I'm pretty sure this is in the 1930s or 40s, might have been the 20s. There was a mayor of Chicago named Richard J. Daley. And uh, he's one of the most corrupt politicians to ever hold office. He held office for many years and his son after him. His son, not as bad as him to me, but, you know, we almost had a third daily in this last election. And uh, basically, he took redlining to the next level. And so they basically zoned out the city so that we had less voting powers in certain places and built an expressway to further segregate the city. And so to this day, Chicago is the most segregated city per populace in the country. Really? Yeah. All the black people live in two specific areas. And then the other, including black immigrants, live in little pockets around the city. So because uh, we have the worst hospitals and the least amount of hospitals in the black area, because we have the worst schools and the least amount of schools in the area. We we famously closed 50 schools in 2012, I think it was, and a bunch since then. We have, uh, you know, terrible street cleaning, terrible parks. We get the least amount of attention in the city. And obviously because of those things, and also, of course, we have uh, little to no mental health care, the crime is up, right? And because the crime is isolated to these places where there are only black people, naturally, the crime is on each other. It would take a lot for somebody to live in one area where their kid goes to not a great school and they've dealt with the death of, let's say, six friends all in the same year by gun violence and they don't have a job um, and they live in these quarters all day. It would take a lot for them to get in a car and drive, you know, five or six miles to a nicer neighborhood to go kill a white person. They also don't know these white people. So the crime <laughs> circulates in one area. And when there's rioting, they cut off the train systems going to the north part of Chicago. When there was the protest and the rioting, the mayor raised the bridges that connect the south and the north sides of Chicago. So there's really no way for this crime to really get to these other parts of the city. So because they live where there's all black people, the people that are committing the crimes are predominantly black and the victims are predominantly black. So when you have black politicians over and over and over again in Chicago, why, why, why has that not helped this issue have a trajectory change at least within the last 20 years, 30 years. Yeah. It's coded. It's a system. So it's just like the U.S. government. They got everything placed in a way where it's uh, it's very bureaucratic. There's a lot of like layers that keep the systemic racism going, right? And that's giving, that's me giving the benefit of the doubt that every black politician has been working to end systemic racism in Chicago, which I can't, I can't merge that they all have been trying to do that anyway. But it's the same way with, okay, so I know we, we were all talking about Joe Biden's, I think it was 93 crime bill, right? Yeah. That went, you know, through the Senate that 
basically gave legs to mass incarceration, took a lot of black fathers out of the home in the 90s, killed a lot of black people, you know? Truth, truth. The, the, it was the full extension of the war on drugs. That bill was lobbied for and pushed through by the Congressional Black Caucus. So it was a bunch of bunch of black wow. politicians that were pushing for it. And at the end of the day, it's just, it's two things, right? One, people have ulterior motives, even if they're, you know, they say all skin folk ain't kin folk. Yeah, yeah. And then two, people don't always know what's right, you know? I don't think that every single person that pushed for the 93 crime bill was, you know, doing the, uh, the Mr. Burns, like, you know, they weren't all like, I'm going to destroy our own community. Yeah. Some of them maybe just were convinced or thought on their own that that was what we needed as a community. And so I think at the end of the day, I would say the reason why that there are plenty of black politicians, but not so much immediate change that you can see is because, one, there's a lot of bureaucracy to get through and they don't have the full power just with their elected position to make the kind of change that we need to see immediately. And then, two, uh, they might not want to. We might need some different black folks. Just because they black don't mean, you know, that they really got our back. That's the new one. Just because you black ain't got my back. <laughs> he said, that's, he said that's, the, that's the new one. That's the chance. Chance, you're in your 20s. And I need to know, after everything that you just laid out for me, do you get hopeless? Hmm. I think I do, but not over the things that count. <laughs> I have, mm. I have, I get ho I get hopeless like when I can't get the heater to turn on in my house, or like when a door falls off the hinges. But I always, I always try and remember one that I'm extremely blessed. You know. Uh, do you feel guilty sometimes that you made it out? No. Survivor's remorse. <laughs> you never have it. No, I don't feel. I don't feel guilty. Only because I feel like God is writing my story. And so I think that the things that I've been blessed with that I have have all been ordained by God, good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, when I'm able to enjoy a nice vacation, which I don't get to do very often, but when I am on vacation or if I'm, you know, I just I rented a nice car recently. Yeah, I rented a nice car recently, <laughs> you know, uh, nice Did yeah. Did you just say, did you just say, yeah. Yeah. My homie in the room just raised the roof like it's 1991. Who, who, are, who are all these old people around you? This I guy just saying, yeah. Talk to about, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, we, they, we, we in the house. <laughs> yeah. I, this is actually how we talk. I don't know why we talk like we're the same age as you. We're not. We just like that style. We in the house though right now. No, I, I gotta I gotta say this on the on the podcast because I was just talking about preachers that had gold chains. I just rented. Would you stop a this? Stop this. Got, that ain't got nothing to do with you. You're not no preacher. You're not pastoring a church, and you're not living on people's tithes. So yeah. let's move on. <laughs> I ain't gonna touch that. Move on. Hold, hush. Don't <laughs> don't say nothing else. Word to your mother. Okay. So, <laughs> so so we're gonna move on. How can the church be more aligned with this new movement, with this new young social justice movement 
What can the church do more to align itself with it? Because it sounds fresh. It sounds on fire. It sounds like you got to get your hands dirty. You can't wear your Crocs out there. You know what I'm saying? You can't wear yeah. your gaiters out there and, and your long jacket, you know, light light sky blue suit out there. You know what I mean? You got to be ready to be gullied up. How can the church connect with this more? I think there's a lot of ways. One, you can donate to some of these causes. There's a lot of, you know... Uh, a lot of young people's causes, specifically in Chicago, too, that I could think of is one is called Asada's Daughters. That's a bunch of young women that do some of the best organizing because it's, it's not always as intangible or poetic or symbolic as like just racial justice or black versus white. It's a mm-hmm. lot of like real systemic things that happen, yes. namely the closing of NTA, National Teachers Academy, is like one of the best schools in Chicago. 90% black, and the city of Chicago wanted to close it down and give it to some other kids. And basically, uh, these groups, Good Kid, Mad City, Asada's Daughters, and the actual students that just went to NTA, organized and fought and occupied City Hall for so mm. long that Ooh. it became national news, and they couldn't close the school down anymore. And that right there is an actual attack on systemic racism. And yes. so when you go in and support these these small organizations and you give them your little, you know, $20, $40, $50, like that's a big thing for them because they also feed these kids. They also take them on experiential trips and, uh, and do a lot of other stuff. So donating is a big way to, yeah, like you just said, sometimes you got to get your gators dirty. Sometimes you got to get a little, <laughs> yeah. you know, a little pepper spray on your church hat. Sometimes yeah, you got to yeah, come yeah. outside, <laughs> run it back part two. You got you you was holding yeah. us down in the 60s. You yeah. got to come back yeah. part noir. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. You guys don't have to go outside. Stay inside. It is COVID season. Please well, let us do the marching. When it's over, though. <laughs> yeah. But, but, when but, it's over, but yes. Please, we'll take it. We'll and, take everything we can. And please introduce me to some of these organizations, but because Definitely. You know, like 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 you've got me really uh, lit, you yeah. know, and, and got, <laughs> you got me wanting to raise the roof. Yeah. Listen, uh, <laughs> listen, man. Every time I come to Chicago. You always trying to get your grandmama some tickets. Yeah, I you know am. What I'm saying I'm I waiting know. for you to announce another show. You always so hit me. <laughs> is I need for you to tell me where does this love for your family come from? Like Ooh. you got mad, crazy love for your family. I do, man. I'm so glad you just brought that up. We just had a crazy good moment recently. First, I'll answer the question. The the love I think comes from somebody that I didn't get to know that well, but there's a woman named Gladys Bennett. She Gladys Bennett is my great grandmother. Mm. She raised almost everybody in my family. A lot of my grandmother and her sisters all had children really young. Mm. My grandmother had my dad when she was I think 17 or 18, and so this was like my dad's mom. She owned this house on 79th in the hood where I grew up, where everybody grew up in the same house, and uh, she was just always about cousins and and aunts and uncles and grandmothers and respecting your elders and and being in the church and giving to the church and uh uh she died when i think i was like only like five years old but you know like that's she was the type of person that people still say that's gladys bennett's great grandson or that you know and so i have beautiful yeah so I, i i feel like to this day we still try and stay close, even through this pandemic. We try and get on Zoom calls when it's a holiday or somebody's birthday. My my cousin Joey just dropped a book on Amazon today, so I'm very, very happy. My cousin Joey Marshall just dropped a, a children's book today on Amazon, so we were all just celebrating that in the group chat this morning. But 
Beautiful. Family's all you got, man. At the end of the day, like, if yeah. this stuff don't work out, if I got an album that comes out and everybody says, I hate you now, my family will still bump it, even if it's whack, because they're my family. Now, let me ask you, as creatives, uh, by nature, we're very self-centered, very selfish, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're always left of center. We're a little off, you yeah. know, we're a little strange. <laughs> you know, come on, come on, man, you know we're a little strange. No, it's Always true. a little strange. Yeah, we're a little strange, but it takes so much normalcy to have a family and to be a husband and to have kids. Yeah. How do you find the strength to tap into what may not naturally be you, you know, to be able to tap into the space of needing to be normal so that your wife and your children are healthy? Uh, they help me. My daughter will tell me straight up, like, I don't want you to go to work today. I don't want you to go to the studio today. I don't mm. want you to. And sometimes I still got to go because it's something that's, you know, I'm meeting somebody else or something. But, like, my wife will definitely tell me, like, you don't need to be at the studio. Like, you don't need to go do this. It's not, it's not worth it in this time. And I feel like I have to just heed that and understand that because if I get sick, the world is going to tweet about it, you know. They might play my songs on the radio, but they're not going to be at my bedside. They're not sleeping at the hospital with me. They're not going to, you know, rub my back. They're not They're not going to pray over me like my wife can. Yeah. And, and what really helped me out with that was with Jeremiah. He was just really, really sick, you know. Come on, man. You finna give me... Come on, boy. You just been preaching. Come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm in a space where I... And best friends with a walking testimony. My best friend was on his last legs. He was, he's only, uh, I think, three or four years older than me, but he was he was in the hospital for a month. He was on life support, wow. on a ventilator, having heart and kidney failure. And the doctors were just saying that he was getting, he was getting worse. He wasn't getting better. And we, it was my first time, but I got on a, you know, I've been on prayer calls before, you know, when they do the prayer calls and and it's like everybody's. But I don't I don't usually talk because I even though I'm not afraid to profess my faith, sometimes I get afraid to pray in front of people. I don't know why. And uh, it was my first time, like getting on the prayer call and like really like bawling, crying, calling out to God and in front wow. of these, these people I didn't know. And we were just like holding on to him because they were everybody, the doctors, everybody was telling us that it wasn't gonna work out for him and we you know the story of uh i'm sure you do but i like to i always like to reference stuff come you know on the, come on man you know the story of a man named jacob who was walking through the desert and the angel of I god heard about a little bit the angel of god came down to him and mm. jacob said to the angel bless me and the angel, what he say he said bless me he said, he said, bless me. And the, and the angel said, let me go. And the man said, I will not let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go. Yeah. And you know what God did? What'd he do? What'd he do? He blessed him. Straight up like that. That's what happened to my friend. My friend <laughs> my friend is out of the hospital. He can walk. He can talk. He's he's still getting, getting all the way there, but he's a walking testimony. I had to go through that and uh, and really, really understand that God is faithful, man. He will make some impossible stuff possible. He's faithful, bro. Yeah. He is faithful. He is faithful, and I am seeing right now that he's been faithful to you, little bro. Yeah. When we get back, I ask Chance to drop a little parting wisdom. More good words after the break.
This has been beautiful. This has been, man, I'm so impressed. I am so impressed with you. <laughs> Thanks. You know, you got a little meat on the bone, brother. You know, <laughs> as I give you another 90s colloquialism, you are the bomb. I'm the bomb. You are the bomb. You are the bomb. <laughs> leave, leave me with a word of wisdom. Leave me with something and you can... You you can freestyle it, and I can play a little something up under you. Or if you just yeah. want to say it, have you want to do it? You want you want to freestyle, and I give you a nice little well, West Coast groove, or you want to just say something, whatever you want to do. But just give us a little nugget, man, to take home right now. Um, let's think about this. I'm gonna just say something. I'm gonna just say this. Just say, just, see if just I, say something. And I hope that this reaches who it's supposed to. And I'm asking God to give me concision of speech right now. Come on, man. There is no peace like the peace of God. And there is no love like the love of God. There's no forgiveness like the forgiveness of God. And so when you get your opportunity to know God, know him. That's it. That's all I got. Ladies and gentlemen, his name is Chancellor <laughs> Jonathan Bennett. That's me. And he don't like that. <laughs> he don't like that. He is he is in a season of high paleness because the temperature <laughs> is not allowing him to get a lot of uh, oxygen to uh, his skin. But ladies and gentlemen, we thank you, Brother Chance, for giving us thank an incredible you, moment. I love you, King. I love you too, I love man. you, King. I always I am appreciate so proud of you. Yeah. My conversation with Chance the Rapper today really brought me to tears and it pulled in my heart him revisiting the moments when we all found out about George Floyd by the horrific video and how it turned the country upside down and and his view from the streets of Chicago and the tension that was happening on the streets was a very painful picture. But to hear him share how important it was for him and the necessity of being engaged on the streets in his hometown of Chicago to show his love for not only people, but his love for God. And the greatest lesson from that for me, and I hope can be for you, is faith without works is dead. One of the biggest challenges that I believe that millennials are having with religion is that religion seems to only be working for those that are preaching it. Sometimes it can leave the image that the pastor is the only one profiting from the tithes that are giving from low-income communities that only continue to help those that are sharing that message themselves. But to be a believer means that I must be willing to leave the pulpit and to be engaged with the people because that is true faith. Now, there are great pastors and there are great ministries that are doing great works. But for everyone that professes that they know God and that they're children of God, we are not to just sit and wait on the bench for God to beam us up. We are to be able to be so engaged with the pain that is happening here on earth that we're willing to roll up our sleeves and help the motherless and the fatherless and those that do not have a voice. And when there's a time to rise up against injustice, Jesus would be there. Jesus would have his hair and a ponytail with his sandals pulled up. He would have some Air One sandals on and would be in the middle of the streets letting the people know that inequality is not from the heart of God that God wants every brother and sister to have the fair opportunity to sit at the table too. That's what Christianity looks like. Even though it has had an ugly past, it does not mean that the future cannot have hope in it. That's what we have to have. And in order to do that, you must stay true to the calling that you know that you have. And that is God has called you to not sit 
but he's called you to stand. Stand in your uniqueness, stand in your identity, stand in your independence, because that is what we need. We do not need you assimilating to what the culture is doing. We need for you to be the authentic you, because when you are standing in your truth, you are more powerful, not just in the pew, but with the people. Social responsibility is to be a part of the movement for equality. And it is necessary for the whole family to be able to eat because nobody wins when the family feuds. At the end of the day, like Chance said, family is all we got. And not just your immediate family. Everybody that is outside of your door, if we are made in the image of God, that is your brother, that is your sister. And when one hurts, we all hurt. This is what being a believer in 2021 should look like. That if we win, it's because we all win. I hope you enjoyed today with Chance the Rapper. It was a beautiful moment to be reminded of the power of when we put our faith in action, a change is going to come. Thank y'all so much for listening to Good Words with Kurt Franklin. If you'd like to support the show, please rate us and leave a review on your podcast app. And if you'd like to support the good work of any of the organizations Chance mentioned, you can find links to their websites in the show notes. Good Words with Kurt Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music, Provident Entertainment, and Spoke Media. We're produced by Trey Jones and Cody Hoffmachel with help from Alicia Force and John Yell Kastner. Our executive producer is Keisha T.K. Dutess with Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. This episode was mixed by Will Sharp. The rest of our team is Reese Brooks and Michael Havens from For Your Soul, Ron Hill and Phil Thornton from Provident Entertainment. And a very special thank you to the Sony Podcast team. Let's go.